This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. We're going to start Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who participate such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So I'm convinced that there are two kinds of people in the world, and they're often married to each other. Point in case. Some people are like, you know what? I know my car and I can push this thing to the bitter end. It is gonna be just fine. I will not run out of gas. And some people are like, yeah, you're getting close to three quarters of a tank. Might wanna get, to get to the gas station. Some people really like to toe the line and say this little light that comes on, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That's not the light that we're supposed to be letting shine, by the way. Uh, it's, it's not that deep. Until you run out of gas. Maybe hypothetically on a major road in Fort Wayne that's full of construction with your entire church staff in the car. Hypothetically, not that that's ever happened, but maybe. I won't mention any names, Jamie. Um, sometimes we just don't take things as serious as we should. We just look at that light and we're like, eh, it's fine. It'll be all right. And we do this in lots of areas of life. It's all of us. And what we really have to ask ourselves this morning is what aren't we taking seriously? And even more specifically than that, do we take our sin as serious as we should? The, the main point from the text, our big idea this morning is this. My sin is far more serious than I treat it. My sin is far more serious than I treat it. So just by a, a little way of reminder, we have been studying the book of Romans and Genesis together in conjunction together. We just got out of a short series that ended last weekend called We Are the Church that pretty much took up most of the fall. We just finished that. We have already preached 11 chapters of the book of Genesis and uh, we preached the first chapter of Romans. And really the goal of this is there's so much overlap between the book of Genesis and the book of Romans that we wanna show you the continuity of scripture and really help elevate your love of the word of God as you see how things play and work together. So we'll be in Romans for a season and then back to Genesis and back and forth between the two because we wanna show those connections to you that exist. We wanna help you see the beauty of the word of God. So, that's where we've been. Now we are picking back up in Romans chapter two uh, after we'd already worked through the first chapter and this nice little light fluffy text to jump back into Romans with. Not really. 
Because the big idea is this, my sin is far more serious than I treat it. And at this point in Romans, we see Paul make a transition. So he switches from the third person plural, which for those of you who aren't great in grammar means they, them, there. So he's talking about everybody else in chapter one. And we see this switch at the beginning of chapter two where he talks about the second person singular. So you, specifically you. So it's not just everybody else church in Rome. It's you specifically. He's making sure that the readers know this just isn't about the world around you. It's about you specifically. He, he's using this writing device that we call a diatribe, and uh, Colin Cruz defines it this way. It's when an orator or author does not address his audience directly, but instead engages a hypothetical dialogue partner. The dialogue between the orator and author and the hypothetical dialogue partner is intended to be heard by the audience and to be a vehicle for their instruction. So it's addressing the inner dialogue of a perceived critic. So you get this. You do this all the time. You're about to go into a hard conversation, and what do you do? Well, if they say this, then I'm going to say this. And if they do this, then I'm going to, right? We play these things out in our mind all the time of like, oh, this is how I'm going to answer this. If they do this, this is what's happening here. Paul has sort of this dialogue going on with his inner critic, which we'll see is very Jewish and probably what he would have thought as a Pharisee. And so he's going back and forth with this hypothetical dialogue partner. In 2 verse 9, we see that it says the, the Jew first. This is just a small reference to the fact that this is really Jewish thinking here. So I'll remind you that the church in Rome has both Jewish believers and Gentile believers in one congregation. And so Paul kind of goes in and out in the book of Romans of who specifically he's kind of coming at. And in this specific instance, in these five verses, really 11, you'll see next week, uh, he's really coming at the Jewish audience specifically. Paul's speaking uh, to people who know the word. They know the law. They love the law. They love the word. But they're missing something. They're massively missing something. My sin is far more serious than I treat it. So I wanna look at four truths about sin this morning from these five verses. Four truths about sin. The first is this, I judge other sin, which judges me. I judge other sin, which judges me. Look back at Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. If you remember back several months ago now at this point to chapter one, verse 20, there's some similarity here. Let's look at it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have made, been made, so they are without excuse. So the world is without excuse, but so the Jews are also without excuse. He's really pulling that in and say, yeah, they're without excuse, but so are you. You know. It also connects back to 132, the last verse of chapter one, 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This word practice shows up twice in that verse. It'll show up three more times in our passage. It's how are they living? What does that actually look like? And while in 132, you see that uh, Paul is talking to uh, people who are giving their approval for um, people living outside of the word of God, it's different here in, in 2.1 but it's actually got more force here. They condemn the evil actions of other people while doing the same things themselves. They know what God says they should do, but they condemn others for not doing the same things that they aren't doing. They're hypocrites. They cast judgment on the sins of others while being guilty of the very same things themselves. So they might look at somebody committing adultery and judge them for having adulterous relationships while they still struggle with lust in their own hearts. Because remember, Jesus elevated those things to the same. They, they look at people who murder and they judge them. But they had anger in their own hearts. And here's the really harsh reality of this text. Here's the kicker. In judging others, they condemn themselves, the text says. They condemn themselves. Well, why? Why is, why is that true? Because, I mean, shouldn't we look around at people around us and, and see their fruit and ask questions about that? Like, isn't that part of discipling other people? Is that what Paul's saying? We shouldn't do that? No, look, look at Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven, verse 15 says this. This is Jesus' words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We know people by their fruits. The text says we should inspect the fruit of other people. Okay, so if that's what Jesus says, then what is Paul saying? Because the two can't contradict each other. Paul's saying, don't pass judgment on someone. I can inspect fruit and not pass judgment. I can inspect fruit and not condemn. Robert Mount says it this way. The, the kind of judging both Jesus and Paul referred to was not a sane appraisal of character based on conduct, but a hypocritical and self-righteous condemnation of the other person. In the same context, Jesus told his followers to watch out for false prophets who are to be recognized by their fruit. That would be difficult, to say the least, apart from determining which actions are moral and which are not. Evaluation is not the same as condemnation. It is the latter that passes sentence. We can evaluate and not condemn, but if we're honest, that's not what we do most of the time. 
Oh, did you hear about George and Sally and, and their divorce? Oh, it's so sad. But you're not really interested in actually helping George and Sally in their divorce in that moment. You're, you're just interested in sharing the news and proclaiming and gossiping about it. We aren't interested in owning the fact that we just had an argument with our spouse on the way to that exact conversation about George and Sally. No, we just wanna judge them for their sin even when we are just as much sinners as they are. But church, God is not swayed by the accusations of the self-righteous. He knows what sin is and what it isn't. He's already a righteous judge. He doesn't need you to make sure that he gets it right. He's gonna get it right. And the text says when we try, when we step into judgment, we sin. And we condemn ourselves. James Dunn said it this way, the very act of passing judgment on others presumes a favorable judgment of God on oneself and so manifests an equal, if not greater, hardness of hearts, an equal, if not greater, need to repent. Remember the story of David and Nathan? So David had sinned with Bathsheba and had gone as far as having her husband Uriah killed, and then God sends the prophet Nathan to David, and he, and he says this. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Leave your finger in Romans and go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want you to see this. Second Samuel 12, verse one, says this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. David was furious. He saw the sin of this story. He had anger, but it was him. The Jews were furious about everybody else's sin around them to the point where they were judging while they were committing the very same things themselves. 
It's easy to get fired up about all the sin around us, isn't it, church? It's much harder to look in the mirror because this is us. We get so fired up about everybody else's sin. We're so quick to judge other people's sin. And so often we're doing the exact same things in our own life. You didn't treat me fairly. You weren't honest with me. All the while we with mistreat our coworkers and our friends. We lie behind their backs. You didn't love me well. While we don't walk in step with 1 Corinthians 13 and how we love other people. You aren't listening to me as you start interrupting everyone else. Over and over and over This is us. We want to point out the faults, the sins of everybody else, but not look in the mirror and deal with our own sin. Church, the text says this condemns us. That is sin against a holy God. Judging other people's sin brings judgment on me. Romans 2, verse 1. We've got to take our sin seriously, church. Four truths about sin. I judge others, which judges me. The second is this. God judges my sin because it's right. God judges my sin because it's right. Look back at verse 2. It says this. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice sin such things. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Might translate it closer to this way. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. This is the Greek word aletheia. It's the same word that we talk about in in spirit and truth when we talk about our worship distinctive. It, It literally means based on reality. It's according to what is true. So God's judgment is based on what is earned and deserved because of sin. It's not a surprise. God knows everything. He knows us. And not just what we do outwardly, he also knows the inward reality of our hearts. Look at Psalm 139 verse four. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I don't even have to speak for God to know what was gonna come out of my mouth. And you say, well, I didn't say it, but you thought it. He knows how sinful we are. He doesn't have to wonder. The judgment of God falls on what it should fall on, and that is our sin. It's true. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And what do sinners do? We sin. And God judges sin because it's right, because it's true, because it's based on the reality of how we actually live our life day in and day out. We are deeply sinful people and our sin deserves judgment. And we have this inner sense of justice, don't we? I I was sitting at the bus stop, waiting to get Tobias on the bus Thursday morning, and there, 
on the stretch of Amstutz that our addition is off of, the speed limit's 40 miles an hour. And I think there are a grand total of about four people in Leo who know that it's 40 miles an hour and don't think it's like 75. Um, so we get police officers that sit at the front of our addition often, which we, you know, like take snacks to and coffee and all the things to like, yeah, let's get these people slowed down. Come on. And love that they're sitting out there. So I pull up to the bus stop. A sheriff is sitting out there. He sits out there somewhat often. So we waved at him and said hi. And um, then this guy comes up over the hill, just flying past our addition, probably 60 miles an hour. You know, he flips on the lights and goes to get him. And out of my mouth goes, got him. It, it was like this inner sense of, yes, he got what he deserved. Maybe a little bit more smug than it should have been, honestly. But there was this sense of he broke the law, right? He deserved to pay that fine. He should have gotten pulled over and got a ticket. There was this sense of justice. And God has that sense of justice about every sin that is committed every day and every second. He sees all the truth of every situation and judges rightly based on that truth. He knows every thought every intention, every action we hold. We are not fooling God, friends. You might be able to fake it with your coworkers. You might even be able to fake it with your family. You cannot fake it with the Lord. He knows. And he is right in judging sin. What are you faking? How are you living? What are you doing like God doesn't see? Generally, I, I'm, I'm living that way when I, I'm hiding, when I'm sinning, because it really, really doesn't have that much earthly consequence, so it's not that big of a deal. Or I'm, I'm more worried about being found out because of that earthly consequence. So my thoughts of, should I do this or not do this, are more like, well, if they find me out, then... There's these consequences. Maybe they'll think less of me. Maybe my reputation will be in the tank. Maybe people won't respect me like they used to. The thought of I'm sinning against a holy God never even enters into the equation. The thought of this breaks the Father's heart to see me live this way doesn't enter into the equation. But God sees it all. And he judges it all. And church, that should stop us in our tracks. It should make us pause. But too often it doesn't. Too often we just press on. We just move through. Because we minimize our sin. Four truths about sin. I judge other sin which judges me. God judges my sin because it's right. And the third is this. I minimize my sin because I'm deceived. I minimize my sin because I'm deceived. Look back at verses three and four with me in Romans two. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you 
to repentance. So in this section, Paul actually asked three questions. It kind of looks like two in the English, but it's really three separate questions. And I think these three questions help highlight three lies we tell ourselves about sin. Three lies we tell about, three lies I tell myself about my sin. The first is this, others are worse than I am. Others are worse than I am. All of verse three is the first question. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think you're gonna judge others, do the same thing, and still escape God's judgment? This is self-righteousness at its core. And church, I'm here to tell you this morning, we all struggle with self-righteousness. Every single one of us, we all struggle with self-righteousness. Righteousness, we gotta own that. Some of you are sitting here this morning and your mind has been wandering to all the people who need to be hearing this. You better wake up this morning because this sermon is about you. One of the hardest things to get a self-righteous person to see is their own sin more than they see everybody else's sin. And we all struggle with this, every single one of us. Ken Hughes said this, the religiously self-righteous easily forgets his own wrongs and feels that other sins are worse than his own. We fool ourselves into believing we are doing God's work by judging other people. Like somehow God needs my help to be a righteous judge. We believe that we take God's side by judging but he doesn't need our help. And your judgment on other people brings judgment on you. We're not talking about assessment. We're not talking about evaluation. We're talking about actual judgment and condemnation. Church, other people's sin is not your biggest problem. Do you know this? Other people's sin is not your biggest problem. Your sin is your biggest problem. We gotta stop minimizing our sin. We gotta stop seeing everybody else's sin way more clearly than we see our own. Where are you at with that this morning? Is that you? Are you judging everyone else's sin while minimizing yours? It's a lie that we tell ourselves that others are worse than I am. Second thing we tell ourselves is that God doesn't really care. God doesn't really care. Look at the second question. It's at the beginning of verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you think just because you know that God is good and kind and patient and passes over sin that you can do whatever you want, you can live however you want, and he really doesn't care? Jesus has me covered, it's good. Church, that's not grace living. You have cheapened the grace of God by minimizing your sin to the point that God doesn't care about it. You have minimized the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul hits this again in Romans chapter six. Flip over a couple pages to Romans chapter six, verse one.
He says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he, we who died to sin still live in it? By no means. Maybe better translated. May it never be. Church, God cares about how we live. And the reality is, he doesn't just care what we do, but he cares how we do it. And this is where gospel living comes in. I can't live rightly without the grace of God in my life properly motivating me to live. I just got the chance to share Jeremiah 17 with the the refugees in northern Uganda and talking about how heart change is necessary for us to actually live rightly. God isn't just interested in our outward obedience. He wants all of us, heart, mind, soul, strength, all of it. The gospel is necessary. The grace of God is necessary to drive us to godly living. But it's not a free pass to just sin it up and not worry. May it never be. Church, we gotta take our holiness seriously. Are you? Are you living and seeking to live righteously? Or have you cheapened the grace of God? Three lies that I tell myself about my sin. Others are worse than I am. God doesn't really care. The last one, it's okay if I don't stop. It's okay if I don't stop. The second half of verse four for the third question. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead us somewhere, church. It's meant to lead us to repentance. Why is God long-suffering? Why is he kind? Why is he patient? He is all of those things so that we will repent. Because what is repentance? It's turning away from sin and running to him full force. He wants all of us. And there's some things that we gotta leave behind to make that happen. We have to repent and turn and move to him. That's why he's long-suffering. That's why he's patient. That's why he's kind. Because he wants to give you an opportunity to repent. To turn from your sin and turn towards him. So that you turn from walking in disobedience. You turn from walking in things that will never satisfy your hearts to moving to the only one who will ever satisfy, Jesus. Church, it's not okay to continue to walk in unrepentance. That unrepentance leads to something. We have to repent of our sin. Look, look where it leads. It's, it's our fourth truth about sin this morning. It's verse five. It's this, I store up wrath when I don't repent. I store up wrath when I don't repent. Look at verse five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Impenitent here literally means unrepentant. Where does a hard and impenitent heart come from? From continually walking in disobedience and not repenting of that disobedience. And the wrath of God will be poured out on that sin. Absolutely, without a doubt. And yet, we keep on walking in disobedience. We keep on walking in unrepentance. Church, that leads to a heart that is hard to God. It's, it's ironic that the very thing that God puts in place is patience to give us the opportunity to come to him, gives us more time to accumulate wrath for ourselves if we don't live as he's called us to live. It gives us more time to, to fill the bank account, to store up that wrath. Robert Mount said this, the person who knows but resists truth does not go away from the encounter morally neutral. Truth resisted hardens the heart. It makes all the more difficult to recognize truth the next time around. Life is not a game without consequences. Resisting truth moves us further and further away from God. It makes it harder and harder to repent every time that we need to. The more we walk in unrepentance, the harder it gets. It's why the author of Hebrews warns us in this way in Hebrews chapter three. He says this, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need people around us who are helping us not give in, who are helping us not be hardened by sin. Because church, we get numb. We live in default mode. We're creatures of habit. Right, like, think of the last time you moved into a new house. There was probably like 800 things on your list of things that you wanted to, to change. You know, there's this light fixture, and we wanted to paint this thing, we wanted to do this thing, and then a year goes by, and the light fixture is still hanging there. And then two years goes by, and the light fixture is still hanging there. And you're thinking about it less and less, till eventually you start like, eh, the light fixture's not so bad. It's kind of grown on me. It's maybe back in trend now, because I, I delayed on it so much. Like, you have the best of intentions in changing those things, but day after day after day, you see it, you see it, you see it, you see it, you do nothing about it, and eventually you just stop thinking about it altogether. Just becomes part of the house. Because it never changed. You've become numb. It's just commonplace. Like, I know I really need to put that internet filter on to help, but it's really not hurting anyone. I'll do it tomorrow. And then the next day, and the next day, and pretty soon you're not even feeling all that guilty about it anymore. I know I probably shouldn't share that story or ask that question, but I just really want some clarity on this situation. I just really need to know some more details here to feel better about this. And then you share it with one and two and three I know I really shouldn't use those harsh words with my kids, but they really upset me. I'll do better tomorrow. Until inevitably they upset you tomorrow. 
and it grows and it breeds and you're unrepentant. And now you have a culture in your home of unrepentant sin. And here we are, day after day after day, storing up wrath over and over and over. And for some of you this morning, this needs to be a wake-up call. You need to really evaluate this morning. What does me not taking my sin seriously actually mean? It's a stern warning. We see a similar warning repeated in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Look, we're not talking about losing your salvation. That's not possible. If you have any doubts about that, read John 10 and come talk to me. But what we are talking about is the ability to go on deliberately sinning and not repenting. You come to church, you reap the benefits, you go to small group, all of these things, you're reaping the benefits of the church and you aren't repenting of sin, you aren't growing to be more like Jesus. What does that say? Are you really walking in the truth of the gospel? Are you really trusting that God has redeemed you and that he is better than all of those other things? For some of you this morning, you need to contemplate that reality. Does the manner of my life indicate that I may not actually be embracing Jesus? Because here's the thing, church. God's wrath will be dealt with. The question is, are you gonna face it on your own in hell for eternity? Or will you walk shielded by Jesus who bore the wrath for you? This is propitiation. He took on the wrath of the Father for you. All of this wrath we're storing up, Jesus took on. Because there's only two options. Future wrath is coming. We're storing it up day by day by day. Are we standing on Jesus or are we facing it on our own? Church, we gotta take sin seriously. We have to take repentance seriously. We have to understand the wrath of God and his hatred of sin. Don't fool yourself into believing that your holiness doesn't matter. Don't presume upon God, the text would say. No, run to him. Run to him. This is the essence of repentance. It's saying, I'm gonna leave this and I'm gonna run here. I'm gonna leave my sin and I'm gonna run full force to Jesus. I gotta turn away from me, turn away from my desires and turn to what God wants for me, turn to Christ and what Christ wants for me. So where are we running, church? Are we running to Jesus? Are we looking to Jesus? Are we walking in repentance? Or are we playing with our sin? Let's pray.
God, I'm so grateful for the truth of your word. Even when it's hard, when it's hard to hear, I need it. I need to be laid bare by the, the word of God. So God, I pray that this would not just be a conviction of a moment, but as your spirit works and moves through your word this morning, that it would carry out of this place, that it would move into actual life change, that people would grow to be more like your son Jesus, that they would look to run from their sin, to cast off their sin and run full force to Jesus. He's the only one that satisfies. So often we give him up for just these lesser things that will never bring us what they promise. Sin only seeks to kill us. And yet so desperately, we wanna play with it. We wanna keep it, we wanna hold it. Help us walk in repentance. Help us see Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.